has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's been tried under the Roman governor Felix. He's been kept under arrest for two years under Felix, while Felix tries to work out what to do with him. Felix is then replaced as governor by Festus. And when Paul appeals before Festus, Paul makes an appeal to Caesar. It's kind of, I've had enough of this nonsense. I want to go to the highest authority. I appeal to Caesar. And uh, uh, Festus says, well, to Caesar, you can go. And then before Paul goes off to Rome, King Agrippa turns up and he wants to hear what Paul has got to say as well. And the conclusion of that part of the story End of Acts 26, as Agrippa saying, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. There was nothing wrong that Paul had done, but because he'd appealed to the highest court in the world, to the highest court he was going to go. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 27. If you want to follow along, it's page 1124 in these Bibles. And we've got quite a lot of ground to cover this morning, just as the Apostle Paul had a lot of grounds to cover from Jerusalem to Rome. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium and about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us as well. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Latia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and Northwest. Okay, we're setting the scene. Let's get the map up, Michael. Thank you. So this shows you where Paul is going. Paul and a couple of his friends, Luke and Aristarchus, are on this boat along with a Roman centurion, a bunch of guards, a bunch of other prisoners, and a whole bunch of other people, people who'd have paid their way to get from Jerusalem to Rome for whatever reason. And there is on this boat competing authority. There's the centurion who has military and legal control of the situation. There's the pilot of the boat who has navigational control of the situation. And there's the owner of the boat who has commercial control of the vessel. And then there is Paul, who seems to have no authority, but actually has huge spiritual authority. And uh, the boat starts to get into trouble with the weather. It says the Day of Atonement had already passed. Uh, at this time, the, the Day of Atonement shifts in our calendar year by year, but this was probably in this year, early October. And with the uh, rather poor sailing technology 
of that time, sailing stopped in the Mediterranean from mid-November to mid-March. It was just too dangerous to sail in the Mediterranean over that winter season. And so this was already into October, and it was getting close to the point where all sailing stopped. And it was just getting very dangerous to continue this voyage. And so Paul stands up and says, we need to stop. This is too dangerous. We can't move on. But his advice is ignored with all kinds of consequences. Now, we can understand the reason why the centurion and the boat's pilot and the boat's owner made the decision to chance it, to say, let's push on. They weren't in a particularly good place. The harbor they'd stopped in wasn't one suitable to overwinter in. They were a bit caught between a rock and a hard place. A decision had to be made. Sounds a bit like the current Brexit negotiations. A decision has to be made, but we're really not sure what to do. Which authority, who do you listen to? And they should have listened to Paul, but because Paul doesn't seem to have authority, they ignore him. The majority say, let's do this, and they press on into the wind. Second scene is the storm. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he has told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. At this point in the story, Paul's superior authority begins to assert itself. In the reality of the storm, the military legal authority of the centurion and the navigational authority of the pilot and the commercial authority of the ship owner are all exposed as being pretty flimsy. And of course, that's what storms do over the past week or two. It's been very stormy. We've had Storm Gareth blowing through, and all kinds of things have been tested by Gareth as he has blown his merry way around. Fence panels are down, and bits in the garden are thrown around, and there's lumps falling off trees. That's what happens when a storm blows. It tests what is solid. It blows away facades. It reveals what is kind of solid and true. And a storm reveals what is truly valuable. And in this storm, they start chucking valuable stuff overboard because the stuff they're chucking overboard isn't as valuable as their lives. They'd rather jettison the cargo, jettison bits of the ship's tackle in order to try and preserve their own skins. This kind of poses a good question for us. What 
might we jettison if our lives depended on it? If our lives really depended on it, what might we say we can do without that? What materially or socially or emotionally might we say, actually, I can do without that if only I'm going to stay alive? The storm tests what you really value. And then Paul does what you should never do. He stands up and says, I told you so. And really, you're not meant to do that. That's not the kind of thing that we do. Maybe it's just that we're a bit too British and polite. But sometimes that's true. I'm thinking about this. A friend of mine, also in ministry, who made a decision five years ago, which I thought was going to end up in disaster. And the reality, sadly, is that it has. And you know, it's so difficult not to say to him, I told you so. Why do you do that? But Paul doesn't have any of that sense of reticence. He stands up and says, look, guys, I told you this would happen. You've got into this mess because you didn't listen to me. And then Paul gets increasing revelation about what is going to happen. So when he made his first warning, he told them, this is going to be disastrous for your cargo and for your lives. Here he says to them, this is going to be disastrous, but only for your cargo and the ship. And what we see here is unfolding prophetic revelation being given to Paul. So back before they set out, he knows it's going to be disastrous. He thinks it's going to cost them their lives as well as the ship. Here God speaks to him and says, it's not going to be the lives of the people on board. It's just going to be the vessel itself and all it's carrying. And that's often how prophetic revelation works. Often prophecy comes and then God gives further clarity and further revelation as we proceed with what we represented this morning, taking an offering again for our 2020 vision. That's what we're looking for. We feel that God has led us into certain things that God has prophetically spoken to us, but we're looking for ongoing clarifying revelation as the months go by. That's that's how the prophetic works. Was Paul wrong when he said to the men, you're going to lose your lives and the ship? No, actually he had just a partial revelation and then God gave him a greater, more clarifying revelation as they got further into the situation. And he says to them, keep up your courage. And really, this is such an important part of what the prophetic gift and what spiritual authority is meant to do. That those who have spiritual authority and those who have prophetic gifts are meant to speak courage to others. Meant to steal the courage of the people that they're with. And the reality is that they're not going to escape scot-free. They're in a bad spot, and it's going to end badly. It's going to cost them big time. The ship owner is going to lo- lose his ship and all his cargo, and all that represents materially. They're going to keep their lives. They're going to live to fight another day. It's going to cost them, though, and so they need to keep their courage because what they're in is going to be hard. And in this, we see that while Paul speaks courage to the rest of the ship's crew, he is himself not immune to fear. And when the angel of the Lord appears to him, the thing the angel says to Paul is, do not be afraid. Now, normally when angels appear, or very often when angels appear in the Bible, that is how they begin the conversation, do not be afraid. And often that's because when somebody sees an angel, they are terrified because it's an angel, and angels are pretty scary. But here the angel appears to Paul and says, do not be afraid while you're in this storm. Actually, your job, Paul, is to speak courage to the rest of the people on this boat. And what you're going to do, Paul, is you're going to get to Rome because that's where God wants you. A few chapters back in Acts chapter 23, when Paul had first been arrested in Jerusalem, he has another vision there where God speaks to him and says, you are going to get to Rome. And it's repeated again here. You're meant to get to Rome. Nothing, no storm is going to stop this from happening. Where does God want Paul? He wants him in Rome. 
No storm is going to stop that from happening. And you know, if you are caught in a storm, it's good to have somebody say to you, do not be afraid. That can also be really hard to hear. Because if you are caught in a storm of life, actually what we often want in our kind of timid flesh is for somebody to come alongside us and say, you're in a real storm, you must be really afraid. I'm really afraid too! Because that just yeah, reaffirms how we're feeling. But what we actually need to hear is what the angel speaks to Paul and then what Paul speaks to the crew. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Yes, you're in a storm. Yes, this is a desperate situation. But God has a plan he's going to work out. And so Paul takes courage, and he uses that courage he receives from God to encourage the others with him. There's the confidence that comes to Paul because of the message that is spoken to him by the angel, but the fundamental confidence he feels originates in his sense of who he is. And he says to the crew, the God to whom I belong and the God whom I serve has told us this is going to happen. That's such a powerful thing. I'd, I'd kind of missed that as I was reading that. We were reading this in our community Bible reading a few days ago, and uh, Rob pointed this out in our group, how powerful that phrase that Paul speaks there is. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Paul, in the midst of a storm with a boat that's about to go down, has a rock-solid sense of who he is, a rock-solid sense of his personal identity. And as we work through these chapters at the end of Acts, the story of Paul being arrested, being on trial, heading towards Rome, we keep seeing this again and again, Paul's sense of who he is. He knows who he is because he knows to whom he belongs and he knows who he serves. And that is such a powerful message to our generation because in our generation we tend to look for our identity from within ourselves. How do I feel? And it's my feelings that define how I identify myself But with Paul, it's completely the other way around. For Paul, he finds his identity from without himself. He finds himself, his identity in something greater than himself. He finds his identity in the one to whom he belongs. He finds his identity in Christ Jesus. And I'd suggest to you that there's no greater sense of personal security in your identity that you can have than knowing that you belong to God and you serve God. If you know who God is, if you know that you belong to him and you serve him and he's holding you tight, that gives you utter security in who you are. And so Paul's on a tossing, pitching boat. He's about to sink in the Mediterranean, but he is standing on solid ground because he knows who he is, because he knows to whom he belongs. To whom do you belong? It might be that you're in a storm of life even this morning. If you are, I would say, keep up your courage. It might be that the storm you're in is even of your own making. It's down to foolish decisions you made that life is in a mess and you feel caught in a storm. Even if that is the case, don't despair. Look to the one who's gracious. That's what Paul says here. The Lord has graciously said he will save the lives of everyone on this boat. Did they deserve that? No. No. But God in his grace was going to save them. If you've screwed up life, if your life's in a storm because of the decisions you've made, take courage, look to the God of grace, find your identity in him. Third thing, the shipwreck. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Just a bit bit of geography. In the ancient world, the Adriatic was a name given 
to a much bigger area than we would now say, so this is the Mediterranean in our, in our geographical terminology. When about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land, they took soundings and found that the water was 40 meters deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found it was 30 meters deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboats and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship stuck a struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reach land safely. Now, before things get better, they're going to get worse for the guys on the ship. <coughs> this is not an experience that any of them would have chosen. It's not something they'd signed up for, but it is still part of God's plan. And remember, God's plan is that Paul gets to Rome. And so the question that we ask here, I ask here, is isn't there a more straightforward way by which God could have got Paul to Rome? Why does this have to happen? Well, that must be true. Paul could have got there on a plane sailing journey. Or the Lord could have provided a plane 2,000 years in advance <laughs> of technological developments. But God is working somehow through the shipwreck, just as God worked through the storm. And there's something for us to learn here as well. That God can work through shipwreck moments to bring us blessing. Those things we never look for. And of course, there are multiple biblical examples of that happening. Think of the story of Joseph being sold as a slave to Egypt. as a shipwreck moment. What was that all about? Well, it was about the saving of multiple lives in the end. Think about Daniel being dragged out of Jerusalem as the Babylonians came and overtook the city and took Daniel and his friends in exile to Babylon. Shipwreck moment. What good's going to come out of that? Well, think about the great prophet Daniel and all that he meant for the story of the people of God. Think about Job who had everything stripped away, who suffered incredible physical illness, who lost everything he owned, whose kids died. Shipwreck moment. What's going to come out of that? Well, in the end, God brought blessing to him, and the story of Job has stood as a lesson and a comfort to believers through the millennia. Sometimes God works blessing through shipwreck moments, those things none of us would want, none of us would choose, none of us sign up for, those things we think surely God could have done it an easier way, and yes, he could, but somehow in the plan of God, 
he allows us to go through shipwreck moments and then brings us through into a place of blessing. And in this moment of shipwreck, we see Paul taking charge again of the situation. And he gets really practical. He says to the soldiers, you can't let the sailors abandon the ship. We need them, or it's all going to be even worse. And he cares for the welfare of the 276 people on board. He says to them, you need to eat something. And it's absolutely fascinating that Paul doesn't get super spiritual at this point. So an angel, an angel has turned up and said to Paul, it's going to be all right. You're going to get to Rome. All lives are going to be saved. You might think, well, Paul would just sit back then and say, okay, Lord, you carry on. But he gets practical. We need to keep the sailors on board. We need to eat. You need to eat because you don't eat. You're not going to survive. He represents what Christianity is, which is a complete joining together of the spiritual and the earthly. That he has authority in the situation. Why? Not because of any earthly reason, but because he's given spiritual authority from God. And he knows exactly what God is planning, that God plans for him to get to Rome and that every life will be saved. How's that going to happen? It happens because you keep the sailors on board and you make sure everybody has enough to eat. Incredible joining together of the spiritual and the practical. And you know, in shipwreck moments, we need to take practical steps. If your shipwreck moment is a relational breakdown, that's not going to get fixed just by saying, oh, well, God can sort it out. No, you have to do something. If your shipwreck moment is terrible financial debt, well, you can't just say God will take care of it. He's going to help you, but you need to take some practical steps to get out of your debt. In shipwreck moments, there's practical stuff that needs to be done. God works through the practical stuff. That's how the whole thing is set up. And so Paul is good news for the people on this ship. And we, Gateway Church, we're to be good news for the people in our community as well. We're meant to be good news spiritually, and we're meant to be good news practically. We have the good news of the gospel to proclaim, and we are meant to help people practically as well. That's what we're called to do. And the people, the 276 people on this boat, they're encouraged by Paul's spiritual confidence and they're encouraged because they eat something rather than starving themselves. And we're to feed our community like that, spiritually and practically. That's what we're called to do. Now, the sailors have some skill, but it's not enough to save the ship. The soldiers have responsibility for the prisoners, and they want to kill the prisoners rather than let the prisoners escape, because if the prisoners escape, the soldiers themselves will have to pay with their lives. But the centurion wants to save Paul because he's obviously developed respect and affection for him. And the fact that the centurion saves Paul means that the other prisoners get saved as well. But it's actually the graciousness of God that means they all get saved. It's not down to the skill of the sailors, and it's not down to the generosity of the centurion. It's down to the graciousness of God that they all get to shore. Some of them can swim. Some of them can't, but they all reach land safely. And you know, if you're caught in a storm, if you're caught in a shipwreck, in the end, it's not your ability. It's not how skillful you are, your personal worth that counts. It's all about the grace of God. And so if you're in a shipwreck at the moment... Lean into God's grace. Look to him, his grace to be at work in your life. And the last thing is the snake. Once safely on shore, what a great picture, we found out that the island was called Morta. 
The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was ill in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of those on the island who were ill came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. People on Malta showed unusual kindness to this shipwreck, 276 people. And uh, Malta is an unusual place. It remains an unusual place to this day, a strange uh, rocky island in the Mediterranean, which has been... uh, uh, at the center of so many crucial parts of history. And uh, this snake appears as Paul helps to build a fire, and the snake is a powerful and potent symbol. In Genesis chapter 3, it is a snake who comes and tempts Adam and Eve and leads them to disobey God. In Revelation 20, it says the dragon, that ancient snake, who is the devil or Satan, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. The story of the Bible begins and ends with this imagery of a snake, which represents Satan in some way. Now, what is it with snakes? Now, snakes obviously have the potential to be dangerous. They are disguised. They're hard to see. And so as Paul picks up the wood, he doesn't see the viper because it It's a viper. It looks like a stick. That's what vipers do. They pretend to be sticks, and so you don't see the thing. And Paul didn't see the thing. And then they can move incredibly fast. When a viper strikes, it moves much quicker than most humans can move. And then if it's a venomous snake, well, venom is venomous. It's dangerous stuff. And for much of human history, in many parts of the world, snakes would have been our most dangerous foe. If you're going to get bumped off, unexpectedly, chances are it would be a snake that did the bumping. And in some parts of the world, there's still that kind of real fear of snakes. Uh, and the first time I went to Africa, when I was 18, and I turned up, and on the night I arrived in a little farm in Swaziland, a snake slithered across the path. And I thought, well, that's interesting, it's a snake. And the guy I was with grabbed something and was smashing the snake to death. Why? Because there's a hatred of snakes in Africa, because snakes are seen as so dangerous, are so dangerous. A few years ago, I was in Zimbabwe in a rural setting, and there'd been a a, a black mamba uh, swiveling around, and they'd stoned it to death. And I thought, this is great. So I picked up the mamba, and I wrapped it around my neck, and they were all screaming and running. It was dead. Couldn't do anything to them, but there's, there's this primal fear of snakes, and this strange white guy from England picking up the snake and putting it around his neck just kind of messed with all their mental grids. It's not what you do with snakes. You kill them, and you run from them because they're dangerous. And so there's a primal fear in many people of snakes, which is practical because they're so dangerous, but also somehow is spiritual because of what snakes represent. And so it's not just a coincidence that Paul gets bitten by a snake. What's going on? He's been through a storm. He's been through a shipwreck. What's the deal with the snake? 
Well, I think that once more God is proving a point. That the God whom Paul belongs to, the God whom Paul serves, has victory even over the snake. There's no storm or shipwreck or serpent which is going to stop Paul from getting to where God wants to get him. And the authority of God is demonstrated as once again, Paul kind of sails through. He sailed through the storm, he sailed through the shipwreck, he now sails through being bitten by a snake. And then the authority of God, the authority of the God whom Paul belongs to, the authority of the God whom Paul serves is demonstrated in healing power as Paul not only survives the snake bite, but then prays for the chief official's father, heals him, and then sets about healing everybody else on the island as well. What's happening? Jesus has the victory. And there's this really quite beautiful picture that's painted here by Luke as he describes the kindness and respect which is shown by the Maltese people towards Paul and the rest of the shipwrecked crew. And then Paul repaying that kindness as in the power of Jesus, he heals those on the island who are ill. You see, something of the shalom, the peace of the kingdom of God breaking out on the island of Malta as this bedraggled bunch of people pitch up on the shore. It's a beautiful thing. Now, how do we conclude all this? Something like this, I think. Whatever happens in the world and in our lives, God is going to work out his plan. And storms and shipwrecks and snakes can't stop that. God is going to work out his plan. We can trust him. And in the current uncertainty of the world, we can trust him. The storms of the world, we can trust him. I think Rich is going to lead in praying about the situation in New Zealand and also about Brexit once I've gone. When things like that happen, when we're in a crazy political situation as we are now, when terrible things happen and 49 people are murdered by some nut job, what is going on? There's storms, there's shipwrecks, but in the end, God will work out his plan. And the gospel will be proclaimed. Why, did God, why was God so determined to get Paul to Rome? Because in Rome, Paul was going to declare the gospel at the very highest places of worldly authority. The supremacy of Christ, the lordship of Christ, was going to be proclaimed even to Caesar. The gospel will be proclaimed. And the gospel is good news. It was good news for the centurion and the ship's owner and the pilots and the 276 people on board. Even though they'd ignored Paul in the first place, the gospel was still good news. God was working through Paul, and God worked through Paul in order to bring rescue to that whole company of people. The gospel is good news. Now, something else we can say is that storms are going to come. They will. All of us in our lives experience storms, and the decisions that we make impact the seriousness of that storm. We can make good decisions and the storms are less severe. We make bad decisions and the storms get worse. But if you're in a storm, or if you're in a shipwreck, or if you feel like you're getting tangled up in snakes, look to Jesus because he is the one who is gracious to save and he is the one who is able to save. And through the church, Proclaim the kingdom of God, the shalom of God, the peace of God. In the midst of trouble and confusion and difficulty, to proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom of heaven, where Jesus' reign will be seen and all people will rejoice. Amen? Let me pray, and then I shall shoot down the road. Lord, I thank you so much for this remarkable account of Paul's faith and of your 
faithfulness. And uh, Lord, I do pray for us as a people. Lord, I pray for those of us here this morning who are part of this church and know you, that we would be good news in our community. I pray that we would be those, just as Paul did, who bring spiritual and practical help to the place where you put us to live. I pray that we would bring something of the shalom of God, the kingdom of God. I Lord, think about our name and what you've spoken to us, that we're called to be a gateway to the kingdom of God for many. And Lord, I pray that would be true of us. I pray that our name wouldn't mock us, but would be fulfilled more and more, that we'd see many people in Bournemouth and Paul entering the good news of the kingdom of God because of the gospel message we proclaim and the kindness that we show. So help us in these things, I pray. And Lord, I do pray especially for those here this morning who feel like they're tangled in snakes or feel they're shipwrecked in some way or caught in some kind of storm. I pray, Lord, if that's the case, you'd help them to discern what is most valuable and what they can afford to throw overboard. I pray, Lord, you'd help them to find courage in you. I pray even the word preached this morning would be putting courage into people's souls now, strengthening backbones. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, there would be a, a looking to you as the one who is gracious and the one who is able to save the one who can deliver us and will bring us to the place you intend us to be. I ask these things in your good name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.